This is Charlie Swenson, and I'm in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, on my next podcast, To Hell and Back. And uh, I appreciate everybody who's listening, um, and hope that uh, these prove helpful to you. I'm always interested in feedback about that. Um, get myself a little regulated. I just got a little dysregulated because on my way driving home, I'm sitting at my home, and I was just barely on time. Uh, an event happened that I heard about while I was driving uh, that an announcement was made of a DBT 10-day intensive training that I'll be doing starting in January in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, it was announced, I mean, it was the way it was put out by, by the person who put it out, who I think he just made an inadvertent semi-error that suggested that maybe you can get certification by going to this training. And uh, that's just not possible. You know, it's, you get a certificate of completion that can apply towards certification. So uh, I've spoken to him, but I, it got me, it's amazing. You know, I was driving home. I was kind of mo- being mindful of just being in the car, just driving, just settled, looking forward to talking to you. And then uh, this happened, and uh, I noticed that my stomach t- tensed, uh, my whole body tensed, uh, my mind sped up, uh, as if this was a very big deal. And uh, I just noticed that, and... I think it was uh, really a result of having practiced uh, and learned the skills in DBT that helped me fairly quickly just uh, notice it, observe it, describe it, settle it down, see, you know, how big a deal is this, uh, and send out a communication to get this fixed. And But I still have the aftermath of that because probably my cortisol got going and my sympathetic nervous system. But here we are, we're starting. I do look forward to this today, and I did announce something uh, where I put announcements out about this that I'll probably um, have to revise, but I'll tell you what I mean. Um, first of all, let me say, this, this podcast, and probably the next one, possibly two, I've decided to make, uh, just to, uh, for people, uh, especially people who don't have a lot of exposure to DBT skills, certainly don't have exposure to my way of talking about them or teaching them, to put them out there so that there's kind of a free place where people can go and listen and uh, think about these skills, see if they apply to them. And ideally, the way to listen to these would be to have in front of you uh, a DBT skills training uh, uh, book of handouts and worksheets, because you would find that what I'm going to say sort of follows the uh, the, the handouts. Um, more or less, and it might help you, and it gives you another source of information you can dig into uh, to take this a step further, because this is by no means uh, meant to be a training. Um, it's really a preview, in a way, or a rapid coverage of the different skills. Um, so, just one second here, sorry. Um so I'm, uh, I, I want to tell you about these, and this is the reason why is not because I want to in, indoctrinate anyone into DBT with, through this, but I think within DBT, if you think of DBT as a giant hamburger, <laughs> just try to have that image. It's a giant hamburger, DBT hamburger. And um, if there is a hamburger patty of good meat there, it's the skills, and the rest of it delivers the skills. And it isn't that it doesn't offer other things, but the centerpiece of this treatment is uh, embedded in these skills, in how these skills help you prevent ending up in hell, how they help you uh, be with adversity while you're with it without making things worse, and they help you to find your way out. Um, It's what it's all about, and all of the strategies of the treatment, nearly all, are actually embedded within the skills, too in addition to there being treatment strategies that therapists use. But in this case, I'm really just talking to those of you who might benefit from having these skills on board or having them uh, more stronger than they are now uh, to cope with adversity in your life of all the different kinds that it comes in. 
Um, so that's what I'm doing. I just think that one's life, one's well-being, one's quality of life really depends on these skills, whether you call them these skills or not. There's lots of other terms, and it's no, there's certainly no claim that these, this is the first place these skills have ever been. Um, but uh, So I'm going to do that. There was a thing that I listened to yesterday that affected what I was going to talk about this week, and, and now I'm... I'm uh, when I said I'm revising, I'll revise a bit from it. I listened to a TED Talk of somebody that was very interesting, and it was a very presumptuous title. Uh, I think it said, uh, you know, the history of the world in 18 minutes. And I thought, wow, let me hear that. That's interesting. And it turns out it was interesting, and I learned some things from it. But by no means did it cover any detailed level of the history of the world in 18 minutes. But I thought that was a really cool thing. And I thought, you know, why don't I teach all DBT skills in one hour, which are usually taught, uh, you know, you might say one hour per week plus practice each week for 26 weeks. Uh, so it was kind of a ballsy claim for me to make um, and uh, uh, a little outrageous, but uh, I also thought I could do it when I said it. And then I thought about it today and I thought, you know, I really could do it. Um, but um, then I thought, so what's the point of that? Um, and I thought the point of that is would actually be mostly for my ego. It'd be mostly, look what I can do. I can t- teach these really fast. And also I had the idea, which is not such a bad idea, to make it not have to last forever so that people can get introduced to these skills and then they can look elsewhere to try to find, find uh, how to use them themselves. That by far the best way to get these skills is to go to a group where you get to, you just go week by week and you get all the skills and you get to practice them. But anyway, this will serve whatever purpose it serves for different uh, sets of people. Um, to me, these are the uh, these are the skills uh, that we have in us that help us cope with bad news uh, or uncertain news. The way I was just received this small thing insults, uh, crises, uh, dealing with our children, dealing with each other as adults. Um, they, they just are like a vocabulary of how to cope. So I just thought, okay, I'll go through them. I've already been through some of them, but in more rambling ways. In my previous podcast, I've done some of the mindfulness skills and concepts and principles um, and some about radical acceptance. But um, I want to go back and make this more like, okay, here's this skill, here's this skill, here's this skill, and then walk, walk through them with you. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to take it a step at a time um, and talk to you as if you are a little bit naive about what DBT skills are. So if you're not naive, if you know a lot about them, I hope it doesn't bore you, but it might. And then, But I comfort myself knowing that you can turn off your podcast. <laughs> okay. There are four different types of skills taught in DBT. Oh, and by the way, I'm anticipating not covering them all in one hour. I just thought, you know, that's going to rob this of quality. Uh, It's going to emphasize quantity or speed over quality. Um, So I'm going to get as far as I can get and continue next time. And there are these four types of skills. Um, And there are four four different uh, purposes, really. And uh, they make up the four skills modules for adults in DBT. With adolescents, there is another module that has to do with uh, family relationships. Um, so the, four, the f- first uh, one of the modules is mi- mindfulness or core mindfulness skills, which is really about... Um, and we'll just start with that rather than go through all four right now because I'll be covering them. But the whole point of the core mindfulness skills is to um, a certain version of getting control of your mind. And let me clarify exactly what that's meant to be in DBT. You don't get in control of your mind by blocking thoughts, throwing out thoughts, channeling what you're thinking and feeling. You get With mindfulness, you get control of your mind by getting control of your attention so that you can, like somebody who's looking down from a bridge on a river and watching the river go by, so that you can adopt that posture towards your own mind, towards your emotions, your perceptions, 
your sensations, your thoughts, all the things passing through your mind, which are just constant. The idea is to take an observer seat in your own mind and uh, be mindful of what is occurring there without intervening necessarily or without um, having to block it, resist it, act on it, uh, judge it, interpret it, or anything. It just starts with just observing and just noticing. So um, by doing this over and over and over again, you get in control of your mind by having a broader awareness of what's going on in there and around you, by strengthening your attention over time, because this is all about using your attention to tune in. Uh, it increases your sense of presence in the present moment, and you don't do it by controlling the contents of your mind. And so moving on from that, the first and big task of this module of essentially six skills is to move you in the direction of locating uh, and operating from your wise mind. Flaky sounding concept when I first heard it. By now I totally buy it. I think it's really a helpful concept. You can't locate it. You can't do a scan of the brain and say, here's wise mind. Um, so, uh, but, but, it, but it's experientially Everyone has access to their wise mind, and it's the mind, to d define it operationally, it's the mind from which we make our wisest decisions, the decisions that are really fit with ourselves, our values, our history, our context, uh, our goals. Um, you know, there's such a thing as wiser and less wise decisions, and why being in wise mind or contacting wise mind, connecting with wise mind, helps one to make wise decisions. It's a little difficult to describe more than that what is meant by it. I mean, you can use metaphors and terminology, terminology like, well, find your true self, uh, find your intuition, uh, find what seems right to you, uh, go to your center, uh, get balanced, uh, a number of things like that. Um, and uh, those are reasonable things. And there are uh, lots of, uh, in Linehan's skills manual, there's lots of metaphors and stories for how to get yourself to wise mind through a story or through a metaphor if you can't just kind of go there. And uh, they're really helpful. Um, but uh, um, let's talk now step by step about how uh, we understand getting to wise mind, which is a very good place to get, especially if you have big decisions to make, or if you're in a crunch, you're in a crisis or something, it's best to be making decisions in, within wise mind or from wise mind so that you don't make things worse. So wise mind is thought to be, uh, first of all, an overlap between emotion mind and rational mind. So these are like three states of mind. Emotion mind is that state of mind that is uh, swayed most, is driven most uh, by uh, intense emotions. Uh, intense emotions are in the driver's seat of the decision-making bus, and uh, the rest of us are riding along. Uh, the rational mind is riding along, the intuitive mind. No, emotions are driving the bus. You know, if something happens, if you, let's say uh, I was involved with a, a situation this past week where a young woman on a college campus uh, had been raped or, or had non-consensual non sex, and uh, she reported the, the young man uh, who was then investigated. And uh, I was just thinking about her just now, thinking, you know, um, uh, she, she was then, she's being accused of uh, lying, of uh, misinterpreting what happened. And so it's, it's not an unusual scenario, and it can be very maddening to the person who has genuinely been uh, assaulted or mistreated to then be told that you're lying. So, you know, for her, emotion mind, it would obviously she might get into emotion mind and might be really hurt, uh, really ashamed, really angry, uh, all kind. It depends on the person, and I don't know her. Um, but... Um, the question is, where do you go with emotion mind? How does that fit into what wise mind is? How does emotion mind make decisions? And, you know, if you act out of emotion mind, which often is done rather quickly and sometimes impulsively, you know, you might make your situation worse, right? You might go and start screaming at the perpetrator 
um, or break into the attorney's office that's against you uh, or disappear and just not show up ever again because you don't want to be facing this. Uh, All of these would be driven more by emotion mind than rational mind. Um, And so uh, that, that would be an example of being in a somewhat of a crisis emotionally and then having that happen. Um, there's lots of things you can do about emotions, emotion, mind, and that's what this whole course is about. So just hang in there. The other state of mind is the rational mind. And the rational mind is, is the logical, the state of mind in which we think logically. We're not encumbered so much by emotions. We're not swayed so much. We're really swayed by uh, facts, by tasks, being task-focused, by being logical about what we're uh, thinking how we're thinking about solving a problem, and it is so useful for solving a million logical problems of planning, of timing, of travel, of sequencing, of finances, all these things, lots of things, of course, as you know. And, um, and yet, if you make all your decisions in, re- in rational mind, um, you know, it can, your, your decisions can really lack this color, this huge thing that's so important to who your deep self is, um, where you're, um, uh, for instance, you might, uh, let's say, uh, that you're upset with your child, and you, um, because of that, you, uh, you, you really suddenly have a burst of emotion where you want to scream at the child, and yet you don't think that's a good idea, and let's say you just move into rational mind. And you just start, you detach. Uh, you just quickly uh, assume a, a detached position and, uh, um, and you just figure, you know, bad things happen. And uh, so that's what's happening. He's just, he's just screaming now. And it might be that that's helpful for you in calming down or helping manage the situation or come to some decisions. But at the same time, it probably might represent some degree of cutoff so that the child feels like you are gone, man, even if you're in the same room, if you're acting so rational about it. Uh, that can be very invalidating in itself when somebody's very emotional. So uh, you're not in touch. And there's lots of other situations in life. I'm sure you're imagining them already, things like falling in love or pe- things like trying to, to uh, solve problems that uh, require emotion to help motivate you. So if you're purely in rational mind, it's, it can be problematic. Um, and so getting to wise mind, uh, first of all, uh, usually involves being uh, in contact uh, with uh, emotion mind and being in contact with the, you know, the thinking of rational mind. And so you're thinking about things in a couple of different ways. And there you are trying to balance the two and get to something that actually speaks to both of them and might also be speaking to your sense of intuition and, and your sense of values. What's, what is the right thing for you to do? And so this, this sort of cluster of way of thinking um, lays the ground. It doesn't get you to wise mind. There is no, as far as I know, in teaching this for as long as I have and doing it myself, there is no formula for getting to wise mind. The best thing is to lay the conditions for getting in wise mind and then let it arise so that you get yourself aware of the rational situation and what could be the outcome of various things you do and how did things get to be like this and to be in touch with some of the emotions in the situation so you're not really cut off from yourself um, and you have the benefit of the, the emotional motivators too, and, 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 and motiva- and emotions are information themselves. So if you're in that position, then what do you do to find wise mind or to be in wise mind? You know, I think what you do is you wait and you find other ways to move yourself. It's sort of like once you've laid the groundwork for a fire to start, like what starts the fire? There has to be a spark. Um, and so it's like that. It's setting, uh, it's setting the stage for wise mind. And then I think for, and then it's really individualized. And this is really fun when I teach people is figuring out with each person, how do you get to wise mind? And they they rely on prior experience. So if they get into wise mind by, um, by baking bread, that they really calm, they get centered, they feel wise, they feel removed from other 
things that set off emotions and and they um, and they think about the situation in that situation and then something comes to mind or maybe it's uh, going out in nature maybe it's just waiting and Linehan has lots of suggestions about how to find it maybe you call out uh, what does wise mind think and you wait for an answer as if an echo will come back and you don't force it, and you don't rush it. Maybe it'll come back tonight in a dream. Maybe it'll come back sometime tomorrow or some other day. But it is something a little bit mysterious that way, uh, and yet I would liken it to uh, to trying to start a fire after you've laid a perfectly good fire. So uh, once you have wise mind, um, then, you know, usually the way you know you're in wise mind is it just feels like, you know, this just feels right. I feel like I've covered the bases, and... And I'm my own individual peculiar self, and I'm going to make this peculiar decision, whatever it is. And I know some people are not going to be happy with me about it, but I know I'm doing the right thing for me. Sometimes you can trick yourself. You're still really in emotion mind. You're not really in wise mind. So it's, it's kind of like you kind of have to review it and give it a little time and see if, no, is there anything deeper that you're leaving out? So that's wise mind. You do it, you try to get there the best you can. And then there are these six skills. The first three are called the what skills, W-H-A-T, which means these are three ways of doing things that help move you in a wise mind direction. And then there are three how skills, H-O-W, three how skills that are three things you do while you do the what skills that help you move in a, uh, in a wise mind direction. And they are more like adjectives and adverbs, whereas the what's are more like our, our verbs. The three what skills are observe, describe, and participate. And so what are these? You know, I did a lot of podcasting at the early uh, podcasts about observing because I just think it gets short shrift. It's just you move past, you think you know what it is. Um, but I'll just try again here in a more concise way that observing is just noticing exactly what is, not adding to it, not subtracting from it, not interpreting what it is or assuming that there's something that lies behind it. And it is descriptive. It is behaviorally descriptive. And noticing exactly what is tension in the stomach, I might notice. And I just noticed that, but I haven't even named it, right? And Linehan has always used this metaphor that it's being like a guard at the palace gate. And you're just alert to everything that comes in and goes out. You're just a really concise observer. And, um, and, and, and yet things can come and go. So observing doesn't mean you hang on to anything. It comes into your mind, you notice it. It comes into your body, you notice it. It comes into your sensations, you notice it. And then it comes, it stays for where, however long it wants to stay, so to speak, and then you observe that it goes. It's really just non-interventionist, you might say, other than the fact that it all by itself does quite a bit to just do observing. Um, she has used the metaphor of a Teflon mind, where things get in your mind, and just like a Teflon frying pan, you can then, without any extra substance, you, things will come out of there. They, they don't stick, and they don't stick in your mind. So you just notice these things without labeling, interpreting, judging, without finding patterns or anything. Children do it all the time, right? They do it by looking at... Uh, at a fire, uh, looking at the sky, uh, just looking at little things in the grass, uh, getting down on hands and knees. That's a lot of observing that just goes on in our childhoods, uh, just being places where we just take in what's there without doing anything to it or about it. Um, so that, um, for instance, if you, uh, a little thought of this example today of, trying to think of how many skills would help you if you had a parachute put on you in an airplane that's flying really high. You hadn't yet been taught how to use the parachute, but you could maybe figure it out in calm conditions. And something happens to the plane, and you either jump or get pushed out, and now you're free-falling in the atmosphere. 
and you are very emotional and your body is very aroused and your cortisol, your sympathetic nervous system, everything is on, you know, on full steam ahead. And the wisest thing you could do at first might be to observe, might be to just stop trying to do anything, you know, don't just do something, sit there in the sky and realize, holy cow, I am in trouble. And you sort of see reality as it is. And you sort of see that the ground is going to eventually come, but it isn't there yet. And then you observe and you observe the parachute and you try to get hold of it by observe. That means include it, feel it and feel what it's like and, 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 and give a little thought to it before you do anything else. Because if you just start jerking things around, because you're so frantic in emotion mind, you're likely to end up dead. Um, that it can save your life if you actually can, in the midst of crisis, have a head about you to just at least temporarily just observe and use these skills before you move on to more interventionist skills, right? So that would that be an unusual example, one I've never been in, but <laughs> I hope I never am because I am terrified of heights. Um, probably why I thought of it. And uh, then the next skill sort of follows, you might say, observe, though it doesn't have to. You can just observe, and it can be very helpful in just getting you settled in yourself, your own sensations, your own observations, and move you closer to wise mind just because you're just observing and doing nothing else. Then comes describe or describing. And describing is when you add a label to an observed experience. It can't be a label that captures something that you can't observe. Like you can't look at somebody and say, oh, he's feeling really angry. Um, that just doesn't work because you can't observe anger. Uh, you, he could say, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing uh, a clenched fist, I'm noticing a red face and a tight jaw, I'm noticing some language that sounds like angry language, and all of that would be just be describing, and that's very different than uh, than uh, judging or, or, in, or interpreting beyond that or making assumptions, you're actually describing what actually is available to your senses and not to your guesswork. Um, and it's really focused on just the facts. So you uh, you only describe things if you can observe them, and you have to watch out for assumptions because that, well, that's what most of us do, especially in emotional situations. Um, you know, like uh, let's say you had a brother that you loved but fell prey to addictions, and uh, and we're talking here not about what to do with or for your brother but for yourself with your emotions. And when you're observing, your intense emotional responses, and you're letting them be, you're noticing them in your mind and in your body, the next thing to do would be to attach labels to that and say, my mind is going a mile a minute, uh, something like that, or I am uh, clenching up in my body, I'm, I'm tense, and uh, I'm, I feel the experience of fear inside me, and I sense an urge to scream at him to get him to stop doing this once and for all. And yet, if you stop and look at your rat with things that with your rational mind, you know, all, all of that is still just describing. It would, it would not be describing if you said, he is such a jerk. How dare he keep doing this? Uh, that's a judgment. Um, or to completely let him off the hook and say, so, you know, somebody else did this to him. Those, the, the dealers in the street are destroying this country. You know, there's a certain judgment going on there, uh, even though that might be, uh, to some degree, an accurate description. So it's really getting accurate at observing, accurate at describing, and both brings things into focus of seeing what reality is. Describing, okay, here's this parachute. Here's this strap around my belly. Huh, where does it go? Let's see, where's that thing that they said if I pull it? The parachute will come out. Uh, I'm not sure. There's the two things here. And you're describing, even as you go, if you start judging, you're, you're just giving mind to, giving way to emotion mind or generating more emotion mind. Um, so if you just describe, you can kind of locate yourself in the universe by describing. Um, when I was uh, flying across the biggest glacier in Iceland on a uh, snowmobile, 
with my two boys and my wife, and I was in terror. I swear to God, I, my whole body must have just been emanating fear and terror. Other people noticed it. My kids noticed it. Um, they were doing things that made it worse for a while until they realized I was actually really scared. But the thing that helped me most out of all of that, well, one thing that helped me a lot was other people noticing, like the people who care about me noticing, and then making adjustments and how they were going and stuff. But um, the thing that helped the most was a certain moment when I used describing. Because I was going along thinking, oh, my God, let me, so what, what am I doing? What is the situation? They seem okay. What's wrong with me? Um, and so getting away from that kind of judgment of what's wrong with me, I just said, okay, my hands are so tight. I'm clenching so tight to these handlebars. And my stomach feels so tense and my face feels so tense. And, uh, and I'm having imagery of tipping over, even though nobody's tipping over. We're all just going straight. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of like just describing, okay, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening in me, in my body, and this is happening around me, in my kids, in my wife, in the other people that were on this little run. And, uh, and somehow by just saying, you know what, this is, Charlie, this is fear. This is just fear. Saying this is fear was helpful to me. Then saying this is just fear was helpful. And if I had said to myself, I don't think I did, you're having an experience of fear, that might have even been more helpful, you know, because it's one step more removed, and yet it's still aware that I'm having fear. I'm describing the fear. I described it, the manifestations of the fear. And then I just thought, when I just had that next step and thought, oh, it's just fear, then I was better. I was still afraid. And we're flying across there, and I, I'm having this fear. But then when we all stopped for a break, the leader of the group, which was like a 65-year-old woman who's done this for 40 years, uh, she came over to me, and she said, are you really afraid? And I said, yeah. And she said, "Do you want? shall we do something about it? Do you want to just ride on the back of my snowmobile? Would that feel better to you? Which is really kind of her. And I said, actually, no. Um, I'm just feeling fear. It's just fear. It's not a big problem. And I felt very proud of myself, and I felt like, yes, this is really good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the fear continued, but at a lower level, I would say, the rest of the ride. So describing can be helpful in settling things down, getting you closer to the truth and closer to wise mind. Participate is the third one. This is different than the other two, but all three have to do with immersion in the moment-to-moment experience through your senses, through your mind, your thoughts, through your internal sensing of things. You know, they all have to do with that. Observing has one relationship to it. Describing has another relationship to it. And participating has another relationship to it, which is that you, rather than standing aside, you might say, and observing and describing, you jump in with both feet. You completely engage. Uh, You notice maybe that you have inhibitions, ruminations, doubts, reluctance, uh, self-consciousness, etc. And then you just decide, you know what, I'm going to participate. You know, I never dance. I'm a klutzy dancer. I get embarrassed when I'm dancing, but everybody else is dancing. I'm going. And just then you just get on the dance floor and you do your own crazy thing. And you just sort of lose yourself in it. And that is, uh, that can move people more towards wise mind because you're actually responding spontaneously every second without controlling it by your mind, your thoughts. You're just letting yourself be and not just be in a sitting posture. You're letting yourself be in whatever you're doing in a hundred percent, like being in the zone, being one with that activity. There being no boundary between yourself and whatever is your activity, whether it be a conversation, a piece of music that you're dancing to, or you're actually just closing your eyes and you're participating in the listening to music in a different way than observing and describing, you're actually feeling like you are the music. The music is in you. There's no boundary between the two of you. And that's more of participating. It's a different type of thing to do. And it also can move people towards uh, wise mind. Um, I'm just thinking about uh, the podcasts with Natalia Garcia that talked uh, with me for those three sessions, if you haven't listened to those, um, about the loss of her two-year-old 
child who died in the middle of the night uh, completely unexpectedly. Um, and what a trauma that was. And I was just thinking about at the beginning, the very beginning of her responses naturally included uh, urges to avoid any reminders of her son, like not even go back, didn't want to go back in the house, thought I'll never be able to go back in the house. I'll need to move somewhere else. I'll never be able to drive to work the way I usually do because I used to drop him off at daycare on that way, and I don't want to retrace those steps. I'll never be able to watch the videos we have of him. It'll be just be too painful. And she, when she noticed this, and being herself an expert or a, a young expert in trauma, studying it a lot, um, she decided, no, you know what? If I think I shouldn't go in the house, I should go in the house. If I think I shouldn't watch these videos, I have the urge to avoid them and put them away and never see them, then it's exactly what I should do. And then she jumped in with both feet. She, she with her husband, turned on the videos, as she described to us, and started watching her son, uh, and uh, really painful, crying, uh, and but she decided to just continue. She participated in watching the videos and in letting herself have all the emotions that came with it, which included starting to smile while she's watching him. So alongside the suffering, the pain of it all was smiling. And that came about through participating. And it led to wiser solutions for her. Uh, and that's also an example of exposure or in the skills we'll get to, in the next week or two as acting opposite. Next uh, skill, um, non-judgmental. So this is the first how skill. So if you observe, if you describe, or if you participate in something, in anything, by the way, these don't just mean you're sitting still, observing, describing, participating. You're doing whatever you do in life, and you can observe. You can describe, and you can participate. So they're kind of three skills that are uh, add-ons to whatever you're doing. And then uh, on add-ons onto those are these. Non to be non-judgmental, which is to see reality as it, as it is passing through the moment, exactly as it is, without judgment, as either good or bad uh, reality. Um, if you start to notice that you're blaming yourself, judging yourself, oh, I'm such an idiot, I'm so stupid, um, you might catch yourself and notice, huh, it's a judgment, I'm judging myself. I, I didn't do very well in this particular activity, but you know what, to say that I'm stupid is sort of going beyond that. Um, and then that's a judgment, and you try to notice that that's a judgment. You don't try to stamp it out, which is a common misunderstanding of non-judgmental as a skill. Non-judgmental does not mean that you forbid judgments to enter your mind or that you hurry them out. It's just that you notice them and, and you label them as judgments. You know that they're judgments when you recognize that they're judgments, which means they're not the same as facts. And you're trying in mindfulness skills to remain reality-based, fact-based, not getting carried away by illusions or judgments or blaming yourself or anyone else. You can evaluate things and outcomes of things, but you don't uh, judge. That's different than judging, which is uh, usually a more of a hot statement of some kind. Evaluate might say, you know, if I continue to act in this way, I think the consequences are going to be that I'll never get that, uh, that promotion. Um, whereas uh, judgment would be, I'm, I, I'm so stupid, I'll never be promoted. That's clearly a judgment. And so you would just notice those, that these judgments are very potent, loaded, compact statements that come into our minds and serve a real purpose. They help us cope with things that are uncomfortable, things that are disagreeable, uh, and they help us to discharge those things from having to consider them and to consider the discomfort and to consider the complexity of something. So you oversimplify, you condense, and you end up with just, those are bad people, is a judgment. Uh, it does not move you towards wise mind. The next one is the uh, skill of uh, one mindfully, or one mindful. Um, and so this is the next how skill. How do you do things? You do that. How do you observe, describe, and participate? Whatever you're doing, you do, you do whatever it is one step at a time, one thing at a time. 
remember this wonderful book by Thich Nhat Hanh called Peace is Every Step. The peace of the world is based on each step we take, taking it mindfully and peacefully. Um, and so it's to do one thing at a time with awareness. And it's bringing your entire attention to this one moment when it's trying to scatter itself across a much wider time frame or situation. Um, when we're overwhelmed by many things, uh, it's to simply do one of them at a time with total focus. Uh, again, Thich Nhat Hanh, where he would talk about, uh, it's often quoted because it sort of just captures it, though there's many ways to describe this, is that, you know, there's two ways to wash the dishes. You can wash the dishes in order to get clean dishes, in which it doesn't, in which case it doesn't matter entirely if you do them non-mindfully, as long as you get them clean. To wash the dishes mindfully is to pick up one dish, to take your sponge or whatever you're using, and the water, and wash it with complete awareness uh, to wash that dish and then to put it in the uh, place where it's going next, the rack, whatever, and then you wash another dish, all within your entire attention. And when you do things like that, and I can verify this from my experience, is that uh, being like most people in our society, uh, being a multitasker, um, you know, you really get closer to wise thinking and you say, gee, I do so much. Um, and then you, then, then you, if you slow it down and bring it to one thing at a time, you can still get a lot of things done. It's just that you're not doing them all at once. Like, let's say you had this, uh, addicted, uh, brother that I mentioned before and, uh, and he, and he's been stealing, dr stealing money from your parents and his parents uh, money they've saved up for retirement, and he's found ways into their accounts, all in order to buy drugs. So the money is literally gone, and you find out, and along with his previous unreliability and the fact that you're worried sick about him, that this practical problem about your parents also enters, and you just have intense feelings about it. And so you you kind of want to do everything at once. You want to take care of your parents. You want to... Um, beat the crap out of your brother maybe but you don't want to do that you know that's probably not a good idea um you you want to get rid of all drugs you want to scour the house you want to do lots of things have certain kind of conversations with him and you can't do it all at once but if you wrote down a list okay look this is a huge thing i am very upset about this let me write down the things I'm upset about and then like, let me make a list of things to do that I can actually do and uh, do them one at a time with complete focus. Not so that I'm caught up at every second with the emotionality that comes from considering them all at once. Consider them one at a time once you've broken them down and you can do a lot of things one at a time. But that's what, not how most of us do things in that kind of situation. We usually carry our emotions from one situation to the next. It's very hard to just let go and enter into the next one. And we start accumulating emotionality and accumulating responses, and our, our bodies are hormonally are responding in the same way. So and you arrive at wiser decisions usually if you just slow it down and go one step at a time. There's one final skill in this module and in this in in uh, the mindfulness skills and it's one final how skill you observe you describe you participate effectively now this this mostly has to do with doing things skillfully and effectively um driven by what your goals are and driven by how the universe works and what the rules are in the universe, whether you like them or not. It's in order to get something to work, um, you let that drive your behavior. And so you have to discern, you have to see, okay, no, if I go in and talk to my boss right now while I'm angry, I, was, I consulted to a Department of Mental Health team of case management supervisors today and they're talking about changes in the system that started July 1st that are pretty dramatic and uh, as is typical with a very large governmental agency the, 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 
the new system was begun before people really understood it and before people were really trained and before it was hammered out in terms of the details and what it would mean for clients as well as for the people who are case managers. And so one of them was just, uh, she just kept talking. She's somebody who is a really hard worker, a really good person, great values, and she does her job. And uh, this was an unusual day because she started saying how unfair this was and she is sick of not being trained for things and she's having to do this and this and this and now they're doing a time study of all of them to see what they're doing they get called at any given moment they're supposed to say what they're doing or or they write it down in, in one of like several categories and the categories don't actually match what they do so it's just they're really upset but she started to be very um i would say ineffective because um, what she started to do, which at first was kind of fun, kind of funny, and definitely willful, and a way to deliver a message, was that every single time she got an email or a message that asked her to do the ratings, she would look at the ratings, and then she would uh, email them back and call them back and say, I'm sorry, there's not a category for this, for what I'm doing now. I'm sitting and looking out the window. And uh, so, in other words, she took it to that level because um, she was so angry. So that would have been a good example to ask, wait a minute, okay, we don't want to decide what we're doing here necessarily, though you can. I, I told her there was, you know, I might have done something like what she was doing, and it was understandable, and it might be okay. I don't know the system well enough. But um, she's being driven by what's fair and what's not fair, what's right and what's wrong. And that is a different set of criteria than asking what will work. Because as soon as you ask what will work, you have to ask work towards what. You know, if you want to yell at your brother who has addictions, but you want to be effective, you want to be thinking, where am I going with this? I mean, because you might just end up with a more adversarial relationship. You might end up just reducing his self-esteem and leading him to use more substances. Who knows what you're doing, but, it, but you know, you want to be effective. And be, so being effective really means um, playing by those rules and keeping your eyes on your goals and your values and, and many times letting go of your ego. I would say, for instance, doing the podcast the way I am, um, taking this one skill at a time and really trying to do a higher quality job rather than rushing through so many in one hour just to it, that would have really been just mainly for my ego mainly for for my uh my uh, sense of uh, look what i can do like like a child um and so this feels more to me at least for some of you out there that might listen to this over time that haven't had much exposure to these skills this might be really helpful to you and that's probably out of a wiser mind decision than what i was thinking of doing um, so that's being effective. So this is, uh, this is a fantastic set of things to do. And, you know, they include the word core, core mindfulness skills. And the way I think about that is, um, like, uh, core, uh, musculature on the body, that those core muscles around the spine and in the abdomen, um, are so important. And we often don't exercise them or they get, if they get weak, everything else is harder to do. If they are strong, everything else physically is easier to do, whether it's an athletic thing or whether it's just opening and closing a door. There's, it just is uh, helpful to have the core, uh, muscles, uh, in shape. And I think the inner lining of all of the other skills, when you apply skills to regulate your emotions and be able to let emotions flow in you without having to shut them down and channel them in helpful ways, or when you use the skills that we're going to talk about in distress tolerance of how to temporarily intervene with what's entering your mind as a way to uh, reduce your current level of overstimulation and over-emotionality, that you're moving your mind to some other stimulus, which is distress tolerance skills, that when you're doing that or when you are doing interpersonal skills and asking for what you want in a way that's more likely to be effective, all of these to be done well are based on or have as a prerequisite 
mindfulness, core mindfulness skills. So, you know, I can't say enough about these. Um, and, and if you have uh, practices of mindfulness or yoga or some other sort of martial art or something like that, that focuses on one thing at a time, focuses on being in the moment, notices the difference between judgments and facts, um, all of the things represented by these skills, you know, you just get wiser. I mean, life gets a little smoother. And then when big things come, you might have better core muscles, so to speak, to uh, to then move on to other skills that you can use, which uh, I look forward to talking to you about. Um, hmm. By my usual timing, I have 10 minutes left. I think I'm going to use them. I'm going to start on the next module. So take a breath along with me, please. Breathe in. Breathe out. Let your tension go from your body, from your mind. On the out breath now. And let your mind be as clear as it can be to take in these next 10 minutes. And I'll be following up on them uh, next Wednesday. Because I'm moving on now to a set of skills that, in part, have a very tight connection to the mindfulness skills. And in part, uh, they're a little different. Um, Because this module called Distress Tolerance Skills include two major pieces. One has to do and is called the Reality Acceptance Skills which come very close. It's sort of like bringing mindfulness to aspects of reality that you find disagreeable, that are painful in some way. And, uh, and it's, it's using acceptance towards some of those things for reasons we'll get into. And the other set are uh, crisis survival strategies. And what the whole module is about when you put it all together is it's all about getting through a painful moment of your life without making things worse. And usually that means it's a moment of your life that's hard to make better in the moment. You're in a situation uh, that's bad, that's difficult. Um, You're having a lot of feelings about it in a way that's really hard to change very quickly. You're just really upset about something. Um, And so you're stuck with that situation for the moment you're stuck for that that set of emotions for the moment though you might be able to change one of those things over time the question is how do you tolerate that moment that you're not going to you might say solve how do you tolerate it how do you go through it Um, so that actually things don't get worse for you which they easily can do when you're in a crisis Um, So the goals of the skills I'm going to talk to you about are to how to survive these situations uh, without making things worse. How to accept reality as it is right now. That includes a positive reality, which some people don't like to accept because uh, of, of histories of what have happened to them when they've had positive emotions. So it can apply to accepting reality outside yourself as it is in the moment, uh, and also accepting reality inside yourself as it is in the moment. Um, another thing that comes out of this module, if you use these skills, is it is it, though it may not be easy to see why at first, it helps to become more free. I mean, if we if we can uh, accept reality as it is in this moment and see it clearly. And if we know we have a set of skills to do to survive a crisis, if that's what it is, if we know that, we then can operate with more freedom. And when we feel more free, we can actually look more directly in the face of our distress. We can look in the face of our cravings for substances or other things and our desires and ones that can can cause us trouble sometimes. So we, we operate with a certain level of freedom because... 
um, we actually have the equipment. We have the muscles, the capacity to tolerate. Uh, so if you know, you know, I've mentioned before in this, my son is, a, is uh, by his work for years, has been a whitewater rafting guide, and he's a kayaker with whitewater. If he, the more skills he has where he knows he can get out of a jam and he can get through a difficult stretch of whitewater, the more he can play, the more fun it is. Um, so it's that idea that in our lives, emotionally, if we know what to do with these things and if we are accepting reality rather than hiding from it, looking away from it, in which case it comes up and smacks us on the side of the head eventually. Um, it also, uh, part of this module is to come to terms with the fact, the fact that pain and distress are part of life for everybody. Some have more severe things than others, there's no doubt. But you know, even on a good day, if you watch yourself carefully, you have a lot of different things uh, that can cause you pain or cause you distress. And if you have distress tolerance skills where you can see things as they are, uh, accept things as they are, uh, make decisions based on being mindful, um, then there's a good chance that something that might have turned into more and more pain and caused you more and more suffering because you're not accepting it or because you're not practicing any skillful way of coping with it uh, could, um, it could turn into uh, much more suffering. Uh, and so the idea of the distress tolerance module is uh, basically, and I sh I'm sure you've heard this, either within DBT if you've been there or in lots of other places because it's such a common but such a powerful and important insight, is that there is such a thing as pain. Let's say you have pain of, uh, in your stomach and it's really painful and there's no diagnosis right now and you're not sure what to do to make it better or worse. But you're living with it and that, and then, but you don't, you, you're trying to just kind of like go on about your business and not pay attention to it. But that isn't really working. And so you're thinking, you start to have thoughts like, what the hell? Why am I getting this on this very day when I have this really important meeting later? When I just wanted to have a calm day and everything else is settled and now I have to get pain in my stomach. Um, you know, if you don't have skills to cope with that very well, that can turn into suffering you, because on top of the pain, which is going to remain there and maybe get worse, you have the pain of, of, of thinking it shouldn't be that way, the pain of not accepting it, the pain of not knowing to do what to do with it, the pain of feeling like you're alone on an island in the ocean with that pain without any tools to cope with it. It makes the whole thing lead to real suffering. So as the Buddhists do, and as people in DBT do, and as is, I think, part of our common culture by now, um, we all seem to understand, at least intellectually, that um, non-acceptance of pain uh, leads to suffering. And if you have suffering and pain, you can reduce the suffering to just normal pain, so to speak if you can accept things as they are and have a few things you can do to cope with it in the moment. So that's what this module is all about. Um, and uh, I'm leaving off uh, at a place where the next thing I would start talking about is the, uh, the two categories of skills. What are the skills for doing what I'm talking about? Uh, six of them being reality acceptance skills and six of them being crisis survival strategies and I look forward to telling you about them I hope with good quality next week um, I want to skillfully right now I haven't I haven't talked to you about interpersonal skills yet but I want to use dear man which is a way of asking for what you want which if you don't know what that is you'll learn about it and you'll benefit from it I guarantee you but using dear man with you I want to ask you anybody who's listening while I'm talking or after I've talked and you're listening later to a recording. Um, what I've asked before, but I haven't asked very effectively, I think, um, is just to ask you uh, if you'll write me something on an email. Somebody told me I should create a Facebook page in which people can write comments. 
I, I got to still learn how to do that because um, I'm not very savvy about that. But that, if that helped, I would be glad to do it. But you can email me at c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. I, I, every comment I've received, which isn't very many, frankly, has been helpful and memorable. I mean, just even the littlest thing. And then I start to think, well, nobody's listening. That's why I'm not getting anything. But then actually I get around in the world. And even today, a patient of mine I was talking with, getting her ready to do exposure treatment for trauma that she's had. And we were talking about her mother being a support. And she said, oh, by the way, my mother listens to all your podcasts. Her mother's a real estate agent on Cape Cod. I don't even hardly know her. But I have met her before once. But it's like, oh, yeah, she really likes your podcast. I think, oh, here's another example. I've heard so many people say, oh, yeah, we watch your, we listen to your podcast. So if you listen to this, can you please consider just writing something? I don't want to make you feel bad if you don't, but I just want to effectively ask you if you would and, uh, and reinforce you for that by saying it would mean a lot to me and it really helps and I think it improves the podcast. So everybody, have a great week and I will talk to you. Uh, I'll talk to the podcast uh, next uh, Wednesday. Bye-bye.